Welcome to the British Army's Leadership Podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Army Leadership. Welcome to the latest Cal Podcast with me, Lieutenant Colonel Henry Llewellyn Usher. Today's guest is Dr. Kath Bishop, former international rower, diplomat, and now leadership consultant. Having started rowing at Cambridge University, Kath competed in two boat races. Between 1996 and 2004, she represented Great Britain at numerous world championships and three Olympic Games. With her partner, Catherine Granger, she won the Women's Coxus Pair in the 2003 World Championships and silver at the 2004 Athens Olympics. In 1999, Kath was the World Indoor Rowing Champion. While also competing for Great Britain, from 2001 to 2014, Kath pursued a career in the Foreign Office. As a diplomat, she worked in London, Bosnia and Iraq and was the lead in Whitehall for the UK civilian contribution to stabilising conflicts around the world. These experiences equipped her with leadership, negotiating skills and resilience, which led her to question our traditional views on winning and leadership. Her book, The Long Win, explores a cultural obsession with winning and how it affects the way we approach work, sport, education, international politics and everything in between. The book provides a new perspective on what it means to win and other ways to motivate teams to succeed outside of the traditional winner-takes-all narrative. So, Kath, uh, welcome to the Army Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I'm really looking forward to, uh, to exploring a little about your experiences, both in international sports and international diplomacy, and um, how you think leadership has evolved uh, in those various different areas. Brilliant. Great to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Fantastic. Um, so if I can just ask you uh, as an opening question, perhaps put you on the spot a little bit, what does leadership mean to you? So I immediately don't want to give you a prescriptive formula at all. And so I can't give you a single sentence um, other than perhaps for me, the most important concept is around exploration. So for me, leadership is about exploration of who you are, who the people are around you and what's collectively possible. There's no, there, you know, it's funny, isn't it? There's, there's in the army, we have doctrine and there's a doctrinal answer that we've refined over the years uh, even in the army people's perceptions of what leadership actually means will vary subtly I think it's really really good to have a have a, one's own view so I think for me there's there's a piece about leadership is really a kind of mindset it's an approach that then drives lots of behaviors and the way we interconnect with each other and so I want to come back to that approach piece if you like and for me exploration is a very expansive concept that opens up possibilities you're exploring things you're collaborating whereas quite often as soon as we start to define things we actually close them down again we actually put limits around them and you know we sort of you know hem ourselves in almost by what it is and what it isn't and that's why I reach for that kind of concept of exploration that keeps us thinking in that expansive way. So, so with that in mind do you think that leaders are born or made? I'm absolutely sure that it's all about the journey it's the process it's the evolution it's the development so I, I'm definitely not about leaders being born. So but do you think there might have to be some inherent capability or do you think you can do you do by that rationale keep it do you think you can perhaps turn someone into being a leader or does one have to have an intuitive feel uh so i i think i don't think we would turn people i think everyone has kernel within them that can be developed into leadership uh if they want and if they're in the right environment it's about growing seeds if you like so we're all seeds and we can all grow we will look slightly different when we come out the soil but it's about giving the soil for everybody, for, for all of our seeds to, to kind of flourish as much as they can. And so it's about how we create that soil for others. It's not about actually kind of, you know, what, what the seed looks like. And so that's where I think sometimes we see leadership and even the, the nature of your question, it's somehow about sort of fixing an individual and we're focused on that individual whereas actually it's about creating an environment for everyone to grow in the way that they want in their own bringing all of their own unique strengths and so I come back to this analogy of of gardening of cultivating you know you don't stand over a flower and put it up to make it a better flower the only way you can help it is by enriching the soil it's in and giving it lots of time and, and nurturing it and then you see what comes out fascinating way of looking at because of course sometimes we can be very prescriptive about what a leader is and how we turn them into a better leader but actually you're absolutely right in that bit about nurture 
So using that analogy about, um, you know, how you get the photosynthesis to work and how you give the, the key elements of light and water and food, who was it looking at your own, from your own perspective, who or what was it that first identified you as a leader and who, who allowed you to grow and develop? I mean, I think the second question is key, who allowed me to grow and develop? Uh, you know, at, at what point do we turn into a leader? I'm, I'm not sure, and I'm not sure I want to label that point, because I think what we want is leadership behaviours to be present, you know, as, in, in, in as, as many of our settings as possible. And sometimes that's, that behaviour is about sitting back and facilitating others, and, and that can be present in a, in a school context. So, you know, I think it is that critical part about, yeah, who helped me to grow? And, and I think there's any number of people from inspirational teachers uh, to inspirational sports coaches to inspirational ambassadors in my diplomatic life, you know, and now peers and other people working in kind of coaching and organizational cultural change. And so for me, it is that variety of different influences and people who have perhaps also really stopped to find out who I am along the way and help me to work that out. People who haven't perhaps judged things and people who've helped me overcome some self-limiting beliefs or views of what one should or shouldn't be. It's often people who've taken things off, they've lightened the load, they've you know, opened up things, again, getting you into that expansive mode and, and stopped me being trapped by a particular experience I was having or thought about what ought to happen next. Your perception of perhaps what has occurred and therefore the, the, the causal effect of what that might lead to and then your own preconceived idea of therefore how do I deal with that is that so someone was helping you to do that or is that yeah. allowing you to work it out? I think all of sort of when I think of particular teachers particular coaches uh, in the sports world then it is about people who gave me space to grow and at that point to become a leader to discover in that environment in that mm. context how what leadership could look like so that I went from being a passenger in each of those situations at school in sports in organizations to actually being someone who's contributing to the journey who's starting to shape where we're going and you know, that for me is when the leadership start piece is starting to come out and it's not tied to a job title it's absolutely not tied tied mm. to a job title it's it's tied to a mindset and that sort of being willing to you know explore what's possible with others collaborate take some risks and you know you've got skin in the game in whatever it is that you're doing yeah when you look back at your uh sporting career incredibly successful sporting career um what 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 encouraged you to get into the sport in the first place and then perhaps we might explore a few of the experiences you had at, at the at the very you know top top of world and olympic sport so i definitely experienced a whole range of different approaches and coaching styles through that decade or 10 to 15 years really from when i took up the sport uh, and some of those held me back and some of those allowed me to grow. Uh, I mean, getting into sport for me was totally by chance. I am a, an unlikely Olympian, having not been particularly sporty at school, probably very tall, perhaps not very coordinated, not very fast at running, which is what seemed to distinguish who were the sporty people. And so I actually, when I went to university, didn't really know what hobbies to get involved with certainly wasn't that drawn to it being sport and certainly wasn't drawn to rowing. And in fact, when I arrived and somebody kind of at one of those initial freshers fairs said, you know, do you want to come and row? You're quite tall. I sort of looked at them in a horrified way and said quite clearly no uh, on two counts. It looks just incredibly hard work and involves getting up really early in the morning, which <laughs> neither of those things had, had sort of really figured in my image of student life. Um, so I actually didn't initially, but I got roped into it a few weeks later by people who were becoming friends. And there was a huge buzz. There was a huge camaraderie that I could sense and, and was slightly envious of, even though I still didn't think it was for me. And they came to me one afternoon and said, you know, that basically somebody was injured in the novice crew, their novice crew of eight rowers and a cox. And they needed someone for sort of two and a half weeks to get into the end of term so they could do the end of term novice races. Would I do it for two and a half weeks? And I armed and armed and said, I'll be no good and it's not for me. And gosh, you're getting up so early. But they persisted. 
And, uh, you know, I, I said, well, I'll, I'll just have a go tomorrow. I'm not committing to the two and a half weeks at this point. I'll just see what it's like tomorrow. Uh, secretly quite excited almost, though, to try and uh, have, that it would let me into a different experience of sport in some way. And that's exactly what it did. It was a different setting, being on the river, being by the river, immediately I found just very beautiful. And the actual experience of being in a rowing crew, as you know, is quite a unique, quite an intense team experience. And for mm. me, it allowed me to opt in before I felt very unconfident and incompetent on the hockey pitch or the netball court, whatever it was. And I'd sort of opted out, you know, I'd almost run away from the ball, probably did on many occasions. And um, when you get in a rowing boat, you basically can't get out again. It's very difficult and the rivers are very cold. It and is. so at that point, you opt in. And, and that was just the most lovely environment in which to experience what it's like to be part of a team where everyone's opting in, where each stroke you take, you know, it might be hopeless, but you just got to put that one away and get on to the next one. And, you know, again, you've got the different levels of trying to get your own effort out alongside the rest of the crew, whilst taking account of this natural setting that's throwing all kinds of different water and weather at you. And, and you need mm. to be alert to that as well. And I loved being engaged on those different levels. And so I fell in love with the sport with absolutely no aspirations in terms of high performance, but having found this incredible team experience that I loved being part of. And it was only, I think, because I fell in love with the sport that it enabled me to then withstand some of the sort of later, fairly brutal experiences that, that are part of high-performance sport. Yeah, well, and, and actually, I've always thought that rowing is a great sort of metaphor for life, that you, you, you're, you're, you, don't quite, you can't quite see where you're going, you know roughly the direction you're going in, but you've got to keep going and, and meet the various different challenges and demands as you go along. And you've got to work together as a team uh, in, in a team boat, certainly. And uh, those people who are in the single skulls, then I take my hat off to them, having to do it on your own. Very, very impressive. You're, you're being very modest. You're obviously, you're obviously better, that you're obviously more talented than you realise, because very short space of time, you go from being a complete novice to being in the, in the blue boat and you row in the boat race. In a rowing context, before we talk about perhaps your Olympic and world experiences, but in rowing in the round, who leads? Is there a leader or is it, you know, how do you balance that? Because it's not quite as distinctive as perhaps hockey. We had a lovely chat with Kate richardson Walsh a couple of weeks ago uh, with, with Will Greenwood and his experiences of, of uh, the England rugby team through the World Cup campaign in 2003 very defined leader and leadership groups who are responsible for certain things on the pitch when things are happening. Rowing, it seems subtly different. So I like that because I actually don't think it's ever that simple. Uh, we often <laughs> give people titles of leaders, but since they can't do it on their own, there is usually a requirement for there to be uh, leadership qualities within the group. And it's only by harnessing the best of those that we are able to succeed in whatever the mission is that, that we're, in, we're involved in. And I, so I think life is a bit more like the rowing setup than, you know, we always want these sort of clear cut pictures of things. But I think even with, you know, Kate, the, there, were, there were many leaders in that group mm. and there were leaders on and off the pitch. And so, you know, I think the, the rowing analogy takes that further, you know, within a rowing eight, the Cox has some leadership responsibilities. The stroke of the crew, the person sitting next to the cops who's setting the rhythm has some leadership responsibilities because they have a, an ability to influence what the cops is saying. The coach on the bank, of course, is setting the day-to-day -day program, giving all of the uh, technical input. And so uh, many would see the, the coach on the bank as being the person giving the instructions and therefore the leader. Of course, they sit within an environment where the performance director is the person who's providing you with the funds and the environment and the and perhaps also part of the kind of goal setting expectations piece and the culture within which you're going to work as a crew with your coach so I think there are there are lots of levels and you know ultimately every athlete at certain times will have to step up within that crew and and become a leader now that doesn't mean that that's the person that talks, that everyone's talking all the time or that, that everyone is um, first in the boat every time. So I think I see a much more of a distributed concept of what leadership looks like. That is much more about making sure we are, whilst contributing our own best performance, always conscious that that needs to be done in a way that doesn't 
make it harder for others to give their best performance. Mm. So we're taking account of that environment and the, and the broader natural environment or whatever the organizational environment in which we are situated. And once we start to take responsibility for those and to adjust our actions accordingly, then I think we're starting to go down a leadership route where we're just no longer individually focused, ego focused, short term focused. We're thinking about the bigger purpose of why we're there and the opportunity we have through what we're doing. And I think everybody within that rowing environment has the opportunity to do that. It's an interesting way of framing leadership. We sometimes look at it as a very isolated, standalone purpose or position. Uh, But actually, it's much more subtle than that in bringing people in and giving perhaps direct or indirect responsibility, unwritten or written responsibility. You know, in the military, we would, we would refer to it as mission command for certain different elements of, of subordinate commanders or leaders below one in various different contexts. And, and everyone has a sense of purpose that we're trying to achieve. <clears throat> you mentioned very briefly culture and how you, you all become part of setting the culture. Did you experience, you know, from really, actually, you, you, you and a number of other key female athletes, rowers in particular, became pivotal in changing the perception and dynamics of female or British women's Olympic team for rowing. Was that a, was there a real cultural shift? And has that happened before you and and the likes of Catherine Granger started to achieve great success, which has obviously led to to others following in your footsteps? Why do you think there was that problem or perhaps problem with cultural understanding of where, you know, everything was focused on one specific boat in one specific you know, element of the team rather than looking at it holistically? So culture evolves. So it has definitely mm-hmm. been an evolution over the last sort of 20, 25 years. Uh, but there was, when, when I joined the British team and going back into the last century, into uh, the <laughs> mid nineties, then there was a huge <laughs> cultural problem and culture was a massive barrier for us. I heard very quickly phrases like the women never win you know, we, there had been no Olympic medals from the women's team at that point. And there was a lot of prioritization of, you know, who got the best boats, who got the best water time or training camps, all of that uh, was determined by past performances. And so that's pretty tricky when you're trying to come in and create a different performance that hasn't happened before. And again, just in terms of feedback within the environment, your voice had more weight if you had won a medal. So it might be simply around, you know, the way things were set up or the way that food was, uh, you know, meals or whatever. It didn't matter what it was. Your voice was determined by the number of medals that you had. And so that, of course, excluded all the women who had not because we had won no medals. And it becomes a little bit self-perpetuating as well. So I think the mistake that uh, I sort of came into uh, very naturally fell into a a sort of world where the women were feeling they've got to prove themselves and actually that's not necessarily a helpful mentality but it Mm. is where you often end up when you feel you're that minority group you haven't got a voice and somehow you've got to fight to be heard so there was very much um, you know that that feeling of you know we're, we're out there we're fighting to try and prove ourselves But I think in doing so, we actually wasted energy on battles that took away from how fast the energy that could have gone into how fast our boat was going. And so I think what happened over time when we still didn't get the results in in that sort of um, 96 period and, and then just got a result in Sydney. But actually the rest, you know, other than that one boat that performed the rest of the squad you know were, were not in a good shape going, coming into that olympics um you know i think that kind of made us think about we need to frame things differently we need to create our own culture and not try and like copy or emulate the existing male culture um so i think there was a, almost a sense of we've got to be more like the men than the men or we could never win at that game and that isn't the right game either I think we see that at the moment with the growth of women's sport um, that's been going on for sort of 25 years. And there is a sense that, you know, whether it's women's football, women's cricket, we, it, we don't have to copy the, the men's path. And you almost can't copy the men's path. We have to enable women's sport to find its own path, to create its own story, because it's coming at a different time and there are different stories involved. It's a different context. It's a different world. It's a different audience or um, a bunch of spectators coming to see it. And so I think that was the kind of big shift really from the battling in the 90s 
round to the 2000s when we started to think you know, we're creating our own story we don't yet know what that is but you know we're in a much more again a much more expansive mode rather than with we're trying to do what the men do which just kind of got us trapped in you know in a world that didn't quite work and so there was a huge sort of cultural exploration going on and, and obviously we needed uh, mindsets to shift amongst other authority figures coaches um, performance directors, managers, all of that as well. And, and it took some time, I think, for them to shift their beliefs. Does some of that not require either a, a revision of one's leadership or an ability for someone to be a, a leader? When we talk about our, our, our principles that underpin our culture in the army, our values and standards, the two ones that immediately stand out there from what you're saying is we respect for others is critical and there, there, there didn't appear to be from what you're saying that that inherent respect for the two teams and actually being one team not just being two separate teams and then a degree of selflessness so that people could share the the, the equipment the training space the the the, pe- the the stretch of water one might be rowing on that that surely stems from a requirement to, to have a a a solid leadership platform and then allow people to do a culture to develop well, culture doesn't come from one person. Um, you know, you do need leadership to buy into it. Definitely, mm-hmm. that's part of it. But if they're not moving, then mm-hmm. you have to start to create a culture within the group that you're in. And again, you can't do that on your own. So I think that's the thing that, you know, culture develops at all levels. And, and for it to, to move and be shaped coherently, you, want, you can't just have it happening at the senior level. Mm-hmm. You also can't just have it happening at, at, at the lower level. So that's what's so fascinating about a cultural change journey, if you like, is that mm. you have to, sometimes you, you feel like you're stuck for a bit because you just haven't got enough um, shaping moving forward happening at the different levels. And again, you've got to do more of that sort of influencing, but it's not one person doing that because also we naturally will link in with, um, you know, connect with certain people from other groups who are trying to move with us but no one person is going to connect with all of them. So again, it's that collective piece. And I think that was another thing where we started off, we were fighting each other within the women's team in an effort to raise standards, to be seen, to be competing against each other, because that's what's going to get our standard up. But actually we got stuck competing against each other when at times we needed to be collaborating more Mm. to do things in a different way, you know, where actually it's not about beating each other if, we're limiting how fast we're going. We're not able to make a technical change mm. because it's who is who's top of the rankings every day. And definitely mm. I got trapped in that in that first sort of Olympiad where it was who trained the hardest, who's the toughest, who does kind of the quantity of things. But sometimes we weren't training smart. Sometimes we needed a little bit more recovery time. Sometimes we needed to stop and go slower whilst we improved our technique in order to go faster in six weeks time. And so... You know, that, again, was a shift away from a more typical kind of macho performance narrative, if you like, that actually wasn't really optimizing performance to a place where we could be smarter about actually what are the things that are going to help us to go faster, not some of this sort of who's the who's the toughest. It's a really interesting bit there about so and it plays to, uh, you know, in, in your book and, and you've spoken publicly about perhaps maybe you so you talk about um uh, when you were with Catherine, especially in, in the build up to 2003, you talk about the fact that you were both there perhaps to, for the, to, be, to, to feel the experience, but not necessarily to win. Uh, is there not a dichotomy between what we're saying about how, how you're making the boat go faster, therefore, ultimately, surely that is by, by definition to, to try and win? We also hear, have heard other people on the podcast whether they be military or, or international sportsmen who and women who've achieved at very highest level they talk about that, that it is all about winning how, how do you balance that that bit about and everyone understands that you know the first few year perhaps you were in the team you're like it's 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 just the most amazing thing in the world when does that subtle shift happen between i'm just pleased to be here to now i want to be olympic champion or i want to be olympic champion again I think different people experience that differently. I, I actually wanted to win from the word go. And, and I think that actually held me back because I was so, because I kind of couldn't, couldn't find a, a, an intelligent way to win other than 
what the mantra of the time seemed to be who's the toughest meanest person so it's like well, I'm going to train as hard as I can I'm going to you know absolutely bury myself you know every session all the time mm. I've got to do more than everyone else and and that just wasn't helpful uh, in anything other than the short term I, I think I'm really fascinated by this concept of what winning means mm. and when we all hear the language so much across our lives in education, sport, business, politics, um, the, the times that I can't, it, it, it's holding us back because we define winning in a very narrow, temporary, short-term way. Mm. And so certainly, you know, I've seen so many stories of Olympic champions even who win and are feeling really empty, disconnected mm. from anything the minute they step off the podium and so I've got really fascinated about this question of what what does winning look like and mm. what is it we're chasing and let's make sure we're chasing something that actually has meaning beyond a single moment in time I think Johnny Wilkinson is somebody who's spoken very eloquently and very in a very extreme way about his desperation to win to chase a cap to chase the next um, trophy the next medal um, but the joy never came and the mental yeah. health torture only increased. And so I think, you know, in a world of sport where this winning mantra is so prevalent, we need to be careful about what it is we're trying to win. Now, yeah. here I have to say, you know, that doesn't mean that I think we should all get participation medals and that we seem to get stuck in this binary view that either it's win at all costs or it's have a nice time and have a, have a participation medal. I, I think there's another way. I think that in our pursuit of excellence, and that I absolutely have no problem with and continue to be motivated by, we need to put a framework of meaning around why it matters. So whilst we're trying to, to win, and actually even, you know, I think trying to be number one is, is potentially a more limiting goal than trying to explore your performance potential, because we define it by everyone else. And sometimes once we'd start to define things in terms of beating the next person, we actually forget that there's a whole different level that could be reached until some disruptor comes and, and, and shows us that. Mm. So I think even, you know, for me, it's about framing what's possible. And I like talking about possibilities rather than it's being better than this person here or this person here, because we're starting to look at a very narrow way in which we are defining performance and defining our potential. So for me, you know, I want to make sure that when we're thinking about, okay, I want to win, it's something that has meaning beyond the moment, if you're going to cross the line first or get a trophy or get a certificate or, you know, something ends, a finite project ends. I then want to know why did that matter? What do you take from it? What lasts from it? What does the medal represent? What's the lasting value that you take? And what's the impact beyond yourself and your ego uh, that that brings is there any because it's it's those are the points and I think um, winning has left people feeling very empty very unfulfilled and it's not a great picture of success we also see people who cheat who dope who do all mm. sorts of things on the way to winning and that also isn't success so I think we need to be a bit more discerning about what's acceptable in our picture of success and what's unacceptable the definition of success is a gold medal uh, and it's a hard, tangible thing in, in a very binary way of looking at it. But but actually, your point you're, I think you're making is exactly what we're talking about. And we spoke with Kate, uh, spoke so eloquently in her podcast about, you know, for her, the, the winning the gold medal, of course, was amazing. And of course, was a goal. But actually, it was their legacy for female hockey and for what she and and ultimately Helen espoused and, and supported for you know, a, a community out there that's maybe not just directly relevant to hockey and winning a hockey gold medal but that's that's fascinating is to see how one defines success based on one's different margins and goals that one strives to be rather than just one definable thing. So I think they are a perfect example, that brilliant, inspirational British hockey team in Rio of the long win, as I write about it, where actually when they set out their mission, the language they use doesn't include a gold medal. Doesn't mean they don't want a gold medal, but it's by saying we want to, um, you know, inspire the next generation. I can't remember the exact language that they used, leave that legacy. That's what enabled them to win the gold medal. So you put the gold medal at the center of something that has a meaning of uh, a framework of meaning around it. Mm. 
And actually success isn't about the gold medal, it's about what the gold medal enables. And when we lose sight of what it enables and it becomes just a round gold disc that looks great on a photo for five minutes, then we've, we've lost the picture of what's potentially possible. We've narrowed what success looks like to be something really temporary and fleeting when actually success or gold medal could be about changing lives, transforming an element of the sporting community or the society. Um, so that's why it's so important to connect to the why, the bigger purpose behind the sporting journey. Define your why or work out what your why is before you can go forward. Uh, uh, looking at your a sporting career is, is quite easily defined by success. And we, we're, we're kind of picking apart what success might look like for some people, for the for the armchair sports person, that is definitely uh, three steps on a podium and someone standing on the top. But perhaps for those who are active participants, there are other things along the way that are important. And you're absolutely right. But on that pathway between your start of your career, as you then went all the way through Olympic cycles, mul you know, multiple Olympic Games, and then into your career with the with the, the Foreign Office, working at the heart of you know, overseas um, activity, which we'll love to discuss in a minute. Could you perhaps talk about, you know, how you defined or were, or maybe not defined, but success and failure. We talk about how you define those two things. And we're talking about, you know, someone's winning is another person's just a, just a means to an end. But, you know, which gives greatest impetus, do you think, on a, on a journey to something? Is it success or failure? And how do you learn from those two things? I'm actually just going to go back for a moment because yeah. I just, there's, there's an important concept that I think spectators can share in the same bigger picture of what success looks like. And I actually think that because we've often led a spectator to think it's just about a medal, it's just about one, two, three, that's turned people off from sport mm. and it stopped them connecting to sport. And I think if we can tell richer stories about the highs and the lows and what this medal represents, we'd actually bring people in much more. And it frustrates me that the media sort of just often spend so much time on a set of results that there's going to be another set of results next week or next year and another set of results rather than what they mean. So um, I actually think, you know, spectators are highly intelligent and want more and want human stories because that's actually what all of us are sort of wired to, to enjoy. And in a way that then brings us on to this sort of question of what helps us along the way. And I, I suppose I, I probably don't see success failure in, in a binary way as being that helpful. If failure is part of future success, then it's mm -hmm. key, isn't it? It's just another experience. And actually sometimes success, what seems externally to be success isn't a very positive experience. Mm. So Johnny Wilkinson, great. He's a legend. He won the World Cup, but he was suffering hugely with mental health issues. Is that a picture of success? Uh, Lance Armstrong won loads of tours of France, but uh, stood on the podium, had many of those pictures of success, but he's not successful. So I, almost that sort of, if we try and flip it into success or failure, I think that doesn't help us. What we want to go back to is that sort of rich to human experience, the story of actually how some of what seemed to be an adverse situation enabled us to learn something different or dig deeper or, you know, reach out in a different way or find a different way forward. So it's just another story and it's all learning. And I think that was sort of one of the other things that came out in my own experiences through the highs and lows and days when the medals came and days when the medals didn't come, more of the latter probably. Uh, do you know what? It, it's just all learning that I take into the next part of my life. And I think that's, you know, gives us that momentum through those challenging experiences mm. of going, I'm just, I'm just finding, I'm just learning so much about myself, about the world I'm in, about the different things I could do next time. That, that's actually got to be part of success as well. Mm. Without being too pejorative um and maybe we can we can we can uh uh look around the specifics of failure but um if it's about learning or if it's about you know an experience whichever way one wants to frame it how did you react to your greatest setback so a setback that others might see as you know being kind of catastrophic there's probably always the times that i learned most i think you know it's yeah so you're, you know, you're I, I maybe see. a personal experience where you set your sights on get, attaining something or achieving something or 
you know, and, and you maybe got derailed from the direction you were going in. You know, when one has an end state or a, a goal, as you rightly say, maybe it's not you. Others might perceive it as being, you know, winning or being selected or, you know, getting a certain job or achieving something. How did you react to the, the, the an event that, that you perceived looking at the time was your greatest setback? And how did you react to that? Yeah, so I, I mean, I think, you know, the biggest low in my rowing career was not performing in Sydney at my second Olympics when physiologically I was at a peak and I had been the hardest and toughest person. And so, you know, I was super fit, breaking records on the rowing machine, British records, a world record. But actually this whole broader world of performance, the sort of communication piece, the mindset piece, the culture just wasn't there. And, you know, I didn't deliver. I came ninth and, you know, that felt like a complete catastrophe. Mm. But that was the moment that enabled me to start, you know, from that bottom point, questioning all of these things, all of these assumptions and starting to understand that, you know, I really need to, to shift my mindset with in so many different ways. And I think it was that point that also, you know, I'd felt my identity was tied up in this and because I hadn't got a result. I was of less worth as a person. Again, very common in sport, actually very common in any job where we identify hugely with what we do, as you and colleagues will also connect with this, and where, you know, we go beyond the norm to do our jobs. We're mm. there not just nine to five. We're there, you know, for whatever is required of us. And at that point, we start to identify and tie up, you know, our worth with what we're doing. And that's a really dangerous point if we don't have a broader sense of who we are that isn't purely defined on a job title or the mm. career that we're in. And I definitely suffered at that point from thinking, you know, I am worthless because my boat went, you know, slowly backwards compared with the rest of the world. And this is it. It's the end. I'm not worth anything. And what can I possibly do? And, you know, real low of self-esteem and belief and all of that, you know, a real kind of dark hole that I was in for a while but, you know, my way out of that hole was was the most helpful part of, you know, it led to everything that's happened since. Um, so, you know, all of those times, I mean, it, it's a cliche, but those are the times we learn when when suddenly some things don't go the way we expect, when we're thrown off track and we are, you know, we're forced to learn to challenge our assumptions, to challenge the status quo and to create something that's different because that's our only route now and so you know yes that was a huge setback in you know if you look purely on a piece of paper at results but actually god I wish I'd got to that point sooner um to you know I wish I'd have started kind of questioning things sooner that that I hadn't so it was actually massively helpful to enabling me you know within a really short space of time to get you know within four years to get onto a podium but actually more than that to have a different way of thinking, mm. a different way still to have questions in my mind, because that's, you know, 20 years ago and still to be exploring these questions. But I think on a journey of exploration that is so much more helpful. So as you moved into your you know, the, the sort of early career in the Foreign Office, uh, how did you take those experiences from uh, being part of a uh, a team and the frustrations you've talked about and the, maybe the, the success, successes and setbacks how did you take that into firstly what you know how did you get into working with the foreign office and then how did you take what you'd learned and, and apply that to a very different set of well rules to start with but but actually aims and objectives so I'd actually always wanted to join the Foreign Office. I had studied languages and uh, then international politics as a student. And that's what I'd wanted to do before I went off on this crazy tangent of seeing how fast I can make a boat go backwards. So I'd postponed that point. But actually, after Sydney, I thought, you know what, I've got to I've got to do something different. This is I'm done with the rowing and I'm just going to see if this other door will open. And so I went through the, all the fast stream applications and it did. And I have to say the Foreign Office were really open to, um, really acknowledged that the sporting experience that one might think, you know, is not a normal job and it isn't a normal job was actually of benefit because it was about working with people under pressure and resilience was required and things aren't always predictable in terms of how things come out. And so, Actually, I found lots of really useful things to draw on. And I think particularly the fact that, you know, actually the culture was just starting to shift as well. So I actually joined after Sydney 
and in theory retired from the rowing but pretty quickly having stepped back from the sport thought you know what? I want to have another go and I want to come back and have a different experience I was starting to read much more about culture psychology we had a different coach coming in there was this shift um, happening in sports psychology that separated out performance from results we can't mm. control the results they depend on external factors so we have to be there to bring our best performance and that's what you hear very much prevalent now across the sporting world that although the journalists talk about how you feel about coming first or fifth or ninth athletes answer about whether they've had a pb whether they've you know really delivered their best performance so there were lots of things starting to shift at that point and um you know the foreign office blessed them allowed me to set up my first foreign posting for the end of 2004 before i knew whether i'd been selected or not and to take some time off and, and go back and have another go and so then within about three weeks of the Athens Olympics finishing, uh, I think I had time to kind of come back and um, join the lovely bus top parade around Trafalgar Square. And then I was off in the beautiful country of Bosnia and Herzegovina, having my immersion language training in the beautiful city of Mostar and, you know, throwing myself into, into that world, into post-conflict uh, Bosnia and, and the Balkans world. And I took a lot uh, from you know the the rowing career and in fact both careers that I draw on now my leadership development work that you know in essence I was still working in teams with people under pressure with what felt like a lot at stake now by the time I got to the foreign office I realized that they, there was a lot more at stake than boats going backwards fast and what a mm. privilege that had been to feel that that was a lot at stake um, but you know in essence they were both situations often extreme particularly when working later in Iraq, where you're just in a team, there are lots of things you can't control. And what's gonna help you to deliver your best performance, if you like, is to get clear about how you want to work together, you know, the why, what, what, what's possible, uh, what, you know, again, you can't control any outcomes here, but what might be possible, what can you contribute to, and how do you want to show up? How do you want to turn up with this kind of turmoil of a world, um, you know, particularly some of the, conflict affected areas that I became involved with in, in the diplomatic service mm. you know what's that core of what you're bringing to this really messy uh kind of hectic situation you you've touched some fascinating points so you, when we talked about your rowing and in your book you talk about loss aversion and sort of resultant addictive behaviors in terms of too much emphasis on defined winning and losing and you've you very eloquently explained that behind when you were rowing how how are you able to bring that thinking into working in an environment with conflict resolution, which in many respects is very nuanced, depending on the factions and areas and, and dynamics where you're working, but ultimately is about stopping something and starting something else, so i.e. stopping conflict and trying to bring peace or security and stability? What really mattered was the psychology of those around the negotiating table. And specifically moving from a zero-sum game mindset to a win-win mindset, a collaborative, let's explore together what we could create. And, you know, you could almost define that as that's what the work of negotiation is about. Mm. Um, how ensuring that success isn't defined by, I can only win if you lose, if you don't get what mm. you want. And if you get something you want, that's bad for me. When, when we're in that world, and of course, coming out of a conflict, we're totally in that world. We, we can't move forward at all. And so our work was around very, very slowly, painstakingly, just trying to shift people to see that you, you, your only route forward is, is to explore a way of, you know, together creating something where, you know, you, you'll both take a bigger uh, slice of the pie than any individual pie you might be king of, leader of at, at the end. And, you know, that took slow, slow, painstaking work, but really that's what we were trying to do. And the mindset piece was critical. And of course we mm -hmm. poured over papers and wording and outcomes and agreements, but if the mindset hadn't shifted, then we didn't have anything that would last. Yeah. And so I found that interesting. I think that relates to a lot of organizational life. Um, a lot of the way that people, you know, make decisions even. You talk about the mastery mindset. I've got, I think there's a lot of people out there who'd like to be able to master their mindset sometimes, but 
you know, it's still, it's about focusing on the here and now, recognizing you know the past. We talked about you know previous successes and failures, um, but but in this subtlety is about about perhaps being adaptive to what the outcome is going to be from a diplomatic perspective. That seems very very different. Uh, uh, almost diametrically opposed to what you're trying to achieve in sport, even though we've just discussed what winning might mean to different people. How did you get so that into your teams when you're working with them and, you know, in those, well, certainly the heat of Southern Iraq or, or you know, in those, that sort of climate in Bosnia where one minute it's freezing cold and you blink and the next minute it's boiling hot summers again, which is, which is delightful, but uh, <laughs> poses different problems. Um, it's all, mastery mindset is about this, constant learning journey that we're on um you know we might have some good results we might have some poor results along the way but fundamentally we're just learning and growing and that is a huge part of an athlete's mindset this sense that i can always tomorrow i can be better and you know when you're when you're sort of a lowly world ranking it's what you live on is the fact that i'm going to get better and actually when you're at the top of the rankings it's exactly the same the only way you can stay there is to keep getting better mm -hmm. and in a way success on a daily basis when you know olympic medals are only handed out once every four years so on a daily basis how am i defining whether i'm being successful and, and giving myself a chance of that it's through improvement my daily success goal is to improve as much as i can so it drives you through uh, a, a, an athlete's thinking drives you through your your career but the same in a negotiation you, you don't know where you're going to get to and you don't know how long it's going to take to get there. But, you know, you're just trying to keep learning about what's possible. You're, you're acquiring new pieces of information all the time about the people in the room, about their beliefs, their values, about how you might stretch in their view what's possible, how you might shift their thinking in a different way and just open them up to something that they perhaps have been closed to or just not even considered. And you're just on a learning journey. So when we were negotiating, we often you've got a small team of you, you've got sort of different levels of which you're working. Perhaps someone's on the microphone, someone's connecting with others in the room, someone's preparing material and taking notes. And in between times, that kind of debrief that we'd have, a bit like a rowing crew debrief, would be so crucial to moving on to think, mm. what did we learn from this morning that we didn't know? You know, who said something slightly differently? Did we even pick up? something differently that was said in the room because actually we we're expecting that the Germans always say this or that you know the Russians always say this do we actually hear when they said something different so mm. that kind of checking in on each other checking and challenging to make sure we're really listening to what's happening we're spotting tiny tiny opportunities to move forwards it's essentially a negotiation is a learning process and it's who can learn sort of fastest and deepest and and, and support others to keep coming on that journey as well. That that's generally what what helps you to succeed. So the learning mindset was enormously helpful because also you know they're not it's not linear. An athlete's progression is not linear. A negotiation is not linear. You know you have days where you go backwards before you go forwards again. Well, but that's that's life, isn't it? So if you're on this kind of learning with this learning mindset, you you can get through those points by going, well, what have we found out by the fact we've just gone backwards? What does that tell us that we didn't realize before? Ah, okay, now we know how to do something slightly differently. So it just helps you create momentum, create resilience in the difficult times, but also to keep you, ensure that you continue learning when you succeed. That's also crucial. I find sometimes in, in work situations, in organizations now that People learn when it goes wrong and sort of talk about, oh, we should have done this differently. But when they do well, oh, yeah, great. We just carry on. But actually, you probably didn't do everything well. The result was good, but you didn't always get everything right. And that's one of the things, you know, as an athlete, win or lose, there are things I did well and there are things I need to improve. I can be the best in the world, but I've still got things to improve. I can be the worst in the world, but I've still got things I'm doing that are world class. That mm. learning mindset means you don't go on a huge roller coaster of, success, failure, success, failure. You're just constantly learning. Thinking about how we frame things sometimes about, you know, the umbrella is just to, to have a learning mindset and to learn from 
from everything, whether it be success or failure, quite often one sort of you can see and feel and hear people you know, sit back, rest on their laurels because they've, they've achieved rather than looking at it and going, OK, well, let's lock away what was really good. And then let's analyze perhaps where we can continue to improve. There can you know, there are elements of the military with this with the, you know, the, the focus, the relentless pursuit of excellence to keep improving, whether they've they've done well or whether they perhaps haven't done as well as they wanted to that day. What, what was the greatest challenge you experienced when you were in, in your diplomatic role and, and how did you, you bring these things to bear, learning from perhaps the frustration of not being able to achieve what you wanted to achieve, but still getting to the outcome that was acceptable to all the parties involved? So working in Iraq, uh, in, based in Basra in kind of 2007 to 2008, you know, is probably some of, some of your colleagues, some of the listeners may... Probably a few, probably a few, exactly what you're talking about. You know, incredibly challenging situation, uh, no easy solutions, and huge amounts beyond any single person's control, any government's control even. So you've just got so many uh, uncontrollable, so many unpredictable factors coming into things. Um, And I think, you know, again... it was just about coming back to what, what can I possibly contribute here? You know, I'm not deciding it's the right thing to be here or not. That's, that's a completely different level. What can I do? What am I contributing to? It's about stabilizing a situation in some way. What are the different ways in which you know, I could be contributing to that? And it was very much a one step forward, two steps back uh, on a really frequent basis. And so actually just you know, that connection with those I was working with to be thinking about well okay where where can we where can we make a contribution what Mm. else can we try how can we communicate differently how can we link up more across um some of the elements we should have more control of so you know linking up across uh the military side and the diplomatic side i can remember traveling into basra airport and one of the sort of arriving and one of the kind of lovely um officers or or uh, kind of army personnel greeting us saying "What, what what do you actually do here um, and sort of, you know, we're, we're here to secure the, to secure Basra. What, what, what are you doing? And actually realizing, my goodness, how, how are we not linking in that actually the reason you're securing it is in order to get a political solution, to get political stability to move on. And, and so we did some work just coming out of that in terms of the op order, making it clear that actually the, the bigger picture piece so sometimes there are, you know, small things you can do just to give others an insight into the why to, to kind of link up into that bigger picture of, of what we're doing and why we're there. Uh, and I think that's really important. And, mm. you know, at one level, you also have to accept that we're not all powerful and, you know, I can't bring about world peace. And, you know, you have there's a humility that comes from just trying to do what we can do and all of the people that we encounter, that I encounter, that you encounter. You know, I, I bring my mm. best, I bring a core of integrity and I bring a kind of willingness to explore what's possible and to be as collaborative as possible. Co- collaborative working is um, and, and continuing to learn is is definitely something we've explored and are exploring. Um, I'm conscious of the time. If I if I might just ask you, you know, one more major question, which is which is put, talks about, you know, and there are many of us who can remember being uh in well both bosnia and iraq and 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 all the places in between over the last few years but when you look at it from your perspective as as being a diplomat advice when you were part of a team that was striving together and it was the 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 outcome it was a team outcome when you're working as a diplomat there is there is ultimately someone who is responsible and owns the responsibility for delivering a, a defined outcome so therefore, the leadership piece comes back into play probably more acutely in that environment. Uh, and out with the kind of relationships between Foreign Office and then DFID, now obviously combined, and the military and then various different elements of the military and a coalition and all the other pieces. Looking at it purely from the perspective of your diplomatic uh, team, how did that leadership function uh, happen within the team that you were working for in, in, in Basra in, in that, at that time? So I think, you know, as you highlight there almost, we're, we're always part of multiple teams, aren't we, of, you know, perhaps that, that first team for me, the, the Foreign Office team, but then part of an HMG team and then part of the wider international stakeholders and so on. So I think you have to kind of understand those different levels and, and, and not 
sort of confined too much just to just to one. I mean, interestingly, because of the nature of that hostile, unpredictable environment, the fact that we were kind of on shifts and, you know, constantly one was on leave and then the next person coming back, that forced us to be very collaborative, very non-hierarchical, even though we had our foreign office grades, actually, you know, who's there in the moment and can, and can support what we need at that point, we, we want that person there. So I think it actually led us to uh, be much more kind of needs based rather than hierarchy based mm -hmm. because of the volatility of the environment, which I think was really helpful to where we where we were able to make progress. Um, and so, again, I think, you know, the, the job title looks a little hollow once you get to a to a volatile environment like that. Um, and it's, you know, what what's possible at this point and who's got some skills we can draw on and where can we go next and how can we collectively create a pathway where there is none currently you know being in that creative place you know who can do that under pressure under huge stress um how can we support each other to do that again it, it's totally a team uh, a team-based activity and at different times different ones of us would pick it up because we had a bit more energy because we'd come in refreshed or because we could see a, a way forwards um so again you know the leadership very distributed very mm. collaborative and I think that's more and more what we need in a world that is unpredictable, even when we're working, uh, you know, back in back in a, a, a sort of peaceful context. Um, you know, the more we can get that sense of um, no one person has the answer and therefore we've got to keep drawing collectively and, and, and at different times, different ones of us can draw that out. I think that's what enables us to, to optimise what's possible. You, you hit on something, you know, that whilst there is often certainly in the military one one person in in, in business and, and elsewhere and certainly in the civil service in the in the diplomatic corps uh you know there's ultimately one person who's in charge he might be you know her majesty's ambassador all the way down but you know it actually there's a great skill is working out who that person is who can unlock the problem or who actually he might have the answer you know, you can't work in isolation, which I think is really important. Conscious that this is a, you know, we, we are looking at this through a prism of leadership. I'm going to steer you back onto exactly that thing. And I'm going to ask you, we always finish our podcast with a set of quick fire questions. Uh, so if you'll permit me, I'm going to fire a couple at you and we'll see, we'll see where we go. So go who's the best leader you've ever worked with and why? Oh, yeah, that's really challenging. Uh... I find it always hard to pick out like one mentor, one coach, one one sort of leader. Um, I, I suppose the, you know, I worked with a, a brilliant ambassador when I was in Sarajevo, uh, Matthew Rycroft, and he's now a permanent secretary at the, at the Home Office. And um, he was great fun. He listened. He wasn't ego driven and he was immensely curious. And so I just felt like always we were kind of on a learning journey together. And uh, I really loved working with him. Brilliant. It's always nice to have someone who's both an inspiration, but also tests your theories. It's always quite, it's always quite good. Who's the most inspirational leader from history and why? Oh, I've been quite a fan of Angela Merkel. I think she's been an extraordinary female leader at the highest level for an incredibly long amount of time and she's made some really bold moves and she's had some really deep-rooted values I think a very kind of uh humanity-based leader mm. with some of her work some of her policies towards refugees for example I think showed mm. greater humanity than any other European leader arguably any other world leader and you know just the the ability the longevity the fact that she you know, she was who she was. She didn't pretend to be someone else. She didn't sort of wear over fancy smart clothes. She was in a world surrounded by men and found a way to hold her own without being an alpha male. Um, I have a huge respect for her. Brilliant. What's the most valuable leadership lesson that you've learned? No one has all the answers. Just have to keep learning. Very true. Very true. Uh, and finally, what's the, what's the one piece of advice that you would give a, a young calf as she set out on her on her career? Yeah, to, to stay curious and to find your own path. Actually, don't be afraid to create your own path. Don't feel you've got to copy what others have done. 
and uh, you know think about what's going to matter to you in you know in ten years time. Uh, what's the stuff that you're doing that's uh, going to have lasting value, and to focus your energies on on that. Brilliant, Kath. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for giving up your time, and thank you so much for really really engaging with some really interesting fascinating issues that i know a myriad of people are going to be um, interested in thank you so much great really enjoyed the conversation thanks for inviting me i think you'll all agree a fascinating view of leadership purpose what winning means and how one defines one's role in a team kath explored mindset and the approach to leadership where she talked of the mastery mindset focusing in the present and for a moment letting go of the need for fixed short-term outcomes but always maintaining sight of the overall goal and above all the imperative to ensure that any goal is not finite what we have learned from the process and how we can link that into the next objective mission or goal is critical and throughout all of that the practice of nurturing talent and allowing people's leadership to develop by giving people the space resource and education we can truly allow people to flourish and maximize their potential. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, do please subscribe to our podcast. Please also share and comment. For more information on British Army leadership and to get in touch with anyone on the team, please visit our website. And of course, follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.